desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. He asked a life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you place upon him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will devour them. Their offspring you will destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. Though they intended evil against you and devised a plot, they will not succeed, for you will make them turn their back. You will aim with your bowstrings at their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. There's a lot we could say just in unpacking this text. I don't want to spend too long on it, but um, obviously it's a, a psalm that's praising the Lord. And the king here in this context, the Davidic king, plays obviously a, a central role in God's purposes, the salvation and the leadership of the nation. So just, just to keep it simple and draw our attention to one piece here, notice right in the very middle of the psalm. So it begins with praise, ends with praise, and then it's got these two pieces of five verses that um, talk about the Lord's deliverance and the way he works through the king. But right in the middle is verse 7, which reads, For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. And you'll remember that throughout Israel's history, that was so critical that the leaders of the nation trust the Lord. That the Lord fights their battles for them, right? There might be a king who leads the nation, He might even be the one who's orchestrating the logistics and his responsibility and his commitment, his courage has a part to play in that. And yet at the end of the day, as soon as kings of Israel begin trusting their own might is when they fail. And the Lord is just insistent on Israel understanding that he is the one who is going to bless them and build the nation even when he does it through leaders. And so if we could just take a little principle from that, as spiritual leaders, we need to keep that in mind that looking to the Lord's loving kindness, his unmerited, undeserved mercy and grace is always a piece. Even as we are given more and more responsibility, even as the Lord, you know, potentially gives you a wife and and brings children into your home and you're then caring for them, um, he's entrusting you with those things and yet he's not kind of saying, you're now autonomous and able to do this all on your own. There's always that need to remember that whether we realize it or not, we are totally dependent upon the Lord's loving kindness. And it's uh, through trusting him, through dependence upon that loving kindness, that we will stand and be able to be useful. It's always where we find ourselves. So let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you for this truth. Uh, Sometimes we find ourselves forgetting our own frailty, our own weakness in in folly and depending upon our own resources. Sometimes we find ourselves fully aware of our own weakness and still depending upon our own resources. And Lord, we uh, know that 
you are the one who does accomplish anything that's uh, worthwhile, even as Psalm 127 reminds us. You're the one who builds the house. You're the one who uh, secures uh, the city. And so we look to you, Lord, for all of uh, the things we long for, long to see accomplished under our responsibility in our realms. Um, And we just depend upon you for that, even as we seek through diligent labor to be faithful with those responsibilities, knowing that you do that work through uh, the responsibility of your leaders. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, we will be in um, study, it's page 295, series 17, study 5. So go ahead and turn your book to page 295. Um, we do have more books here. Is anyone here with us for the first time and doesn't have a book? All right. There you are. Here you are. All right, so again, that's page 295, Series 17, Study 5. So this is a new study we're beginning. Pastor Farrell finished up the last one uh, last Tuesday. And now we're jumping into a new one. What is a shepherd, elder, and overseer? So I, I was going to ask a question, but it's probably inevitable that many of you sometimes, especially if you, you aren't a pastor, you've never been a pastor, you've never thought about being a pastor, to wonder... Why does this matter? You know, and one of the answers is that you know, the qualifications for elders are things that, at least in most of them, they, they apply to all men. All men should be aspiring to those things, and that's true. But I just want to kind of readdress that as we jump into a new section. Um, for one thing, the Lord may call some of you to be elders, vocational or non-vocational. And I think sometimes one of the biggest hindrances to men whom the Lord has gifted for that, but who aren't even thinking about it, is a misunderstanding of what it entails, a misunderstanding of what it is. They aren't here today, but I would guess that if um, you know, we had Don Bowman and, and Rich Brown, two of our non-vocational elders, and were to ask them, hey, you know, a number of years ago, would you have considered yourself to be uh, someone who the Lord had gifted to be an elder and should be leading in the church in that way, they'd probably say, no, I hadn't. And it was only as I began to better understand what that entails that I saw that as being a viable option, saw that maybe the Lord had gifted me for that. So there is an important piece in just rightly understanding what that entails. Otherwise, there are men the Lord has gifted for that who may not ever even realize that's something they, they would aspire to because they've got a wrong conception about what that entails. There's also things that all of us can learn about spiritual leadership from just understanding how God intends the, the shepherds of the church to be shepherding. There are principles there about how shepherding is to be done that can be carried over into other domains. Also, um, we all have opinions about how elders should be doing things. We all have opinions about how our pastors should be doing things. We have a system for appraising their work, for deciding whether it's being done rightly or not. We might offer suggestions to them about what they should or should not be doing. We might talk to others about what we think they should be doing and thereby shape those people's understanding of what an elder should be and should not be. 
And as a member of a congregational church, we all have a part to play in identifying and affirming men for eldership. We all have a part to play in that. That's not just a perfunctory role that you kind of sign on the dotted line here, please, because this has already been decided for you. Rubber stamp this. But we all have a part to play as members of a congregational church in deciding who those leaders would be. If I can simply put this kind of in a blunt way, I'll put it in the third person to to avoid it seeming too direct, but anytime someone says, why do I need to know this? They should also be saying, I refuse to have an opinion on this matter because it would be foolish of me after insisting I don't need to know anything about this area and stiff-arming instruction in this area to then weigh in on this area. You guys see that? And yet very, very rarely do people say, I don't need to have an opinion because I've, I've said I don't need to learn anything about this. I haven't sought to understand anything in this area. And this kind of thing happens in a variety of realms. The church teaches a series about missions, and someone says, I don't plan to be a missionary. I don't need this. But then they turn around and share a concern or a suggestion about the missions program. Uh, the problem is not with having input about any area of church life. As a member of a congregational church, we're all expected to be involved in the life of the church. Now, the problem is with that first part of thinking that working hard to understand the biblical teaching on a topic isn't important. And that any of our opinions have relevance um, apart from being instructed by the scriptures. So my point here is not to encourage us to never have an opinion or just kind of a, you know, uh, the idea of shut up and follow. But to say... You know, to the extent that we, we are going to do our role as a member of a congregational church, we need to understand the whole array of kind of what the church is to be about and a variety of doctrinal areas. To say it another way, a congregational model of church government places a high expectation on every church member. In fact, a congregational model of church government is basically predicated upon a high view of every church member. It's based on the principles that every believer is able to read and understand the scriptures. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. And on the idea that there isn't a separate priestly class of members within the new covenant. Under the old covenant, there was. There was a separate group, the priests. Granted, in some level, all of members of the old covenant were kings and priests. But there was also a sense in which there were these kings and priests who had a unique role in mediating God's truth to the nation. But that's not the case under the New Covenant. There's not this separate class. And so, for that reason, um, we have a system of government in the church where the congregation has ultimate authority and leads in those ways. And so, it's important for everyone. Congregational church government places a high expectation on every church member because it has a high view of every church member. And that doesn't mean that every believer automatically has biblical understanding. All those truths about the idea that every believer is able to read the scriptures and understand them and, and come to right understanding directly before the Lord through the scriptures without having to go through some kind of priest to give them that access, that's, that's about a capacity, a capability, but it doesn't mean that everyone immediately understands these things clearly, right? There's still the need to work hard and to basically... Um, work out to, to realize that ability by hard study of the scriptures and understanding those things rightly. So applying that concept to this topic at hand, we have a role to play in deciding who the church's elders are, and so we need to understand who an elder should be. 
and what he is to be doing, what he is to be about according to the scriptures. So as we jump into this lesson, what is the responsibility of an elder? It's a pretty important question. What are pastors to be about? And first we're going to look at a variety of things that people often tend to think they're to be about, but that they, that's not actually something scripture teaches. At a very basic level, their responsibility is to equip the church for doing ministry. To equip the church for doing ministry. It's to prepare the church for every good work, we might say. That's helpful. That's a big distinction from the way some people tend to think about their work, in that sometimes the idea is, you know, the church members simply show up, and the ministry is done by the pastors. They're the ones who do all the work. They're the ones who do the good works. They're the ones who, who do the ministry. If there's going to be any spiritual fruit, it's because the pastors are doing it. And the biblical model is that the pastors equip the church to, to be the ones who not simply, don't hear when I say to do the work of the ministry, simply emptying the trash, cutting the grass, those types of things, but even to do spiritually substantive work of speaking the truth into one another's lives. A little bit later, we won't be able to get there this morning, but this study will take us into Ephesians 4, that will talk a bit more about that dynamic. So let's consider some common misunderstandings about what an elder is, and you'll see a list there, kind of broken up into two sets of four. First, organizational managers. It's often thought that elders are organizational managers. Now, he does put a caveat here, though they take overall responsibility for the flock's management of all kinds of logistics and details of a busy ministry. So there's overall oversight of those things. But according to the New Testament, who takes sort of day-to-day responsibility for the organizational management of the church? Yeah, deacons, that's right. Deacons are the ones who take that, that responsibility for the day-to-day management of Kind of all those types of things, and we see that working out here at Timberlake as we've got a number of men who oversee a variety of responsibilities, and they know what those responsibilities are, and they do an excellent job of following up in those areas and keeping an eye on those things. Um, we have a, you know, a finance committee that as we come up to a new budget year, they will be working on preparing a budget and bringing those to the elders, but doing a lot of that work of thinking through things like inflation, you know, how much has that gone up and what needs to be done there to make sure that we keep up with the the buying power of the dollar and those types of things. So, uh, yeah, deacons are the ones who take care of a lot of that organizational management. Second there, we see business executives, like CEOs building a company empire. What does that look like? What does it look like to, in the context of a church, for a pastor to function like that? So that would be one aspect. Yeah, very good. There should be one man who takes all the responsibility. Ed? (laughs) That was one of the first things I wrote down. Yeah. You sometimes hear this if you hear someone talk about, like, you know, vetting a new pastor, someone who might be a pastor, and the question they ask is, Pastor, what are you going to do to take our church to the next level? And it just sounds like, you know, someone, a board of a company hiring a CEO. It's all about the growth and those next steps. What's going to make us stand out among the competition? And we've always got to be asking, well, what's the mission of the church, right? And how is the man going to accomplish that? Now, that's a fair expectation to see how he's going to lead the church toward what it ought to be. Um, 
But yeah, focus on numbers. Growing numbers is often a piece of that. Um, coming in to help the church reach their goals, to get where they want to be. Um, and, and sometimes it gets to be a little bit um, not quite so black and white because sometimes those goals are a bit arbitrary, and yet they have somewhat of a connection, right? So even numbers, when it comes to numbers, like just simply saying, hey, we want to get our church to the next level by getting up to 350 members. Like, where did that come from? And yet, on the other hand, well, like Christ is about building his church, right? And seeing people come to know the Lord is, is good. So if that simply means, hey, we just aren't very active in evangelism, and we need to understand the role of every church member in evangelism and help equip them to be able to get out there in the community, build, build relationships with their neighbors and share the gospel with them so that people are hearing the gospel and we're going to trust the Lord. Two, if when he sees fit to, to give people new hearts, that they'll respond to that gospel message and then we'll work toward bringing them into the church where they can be growing and maturing. Like, that's a beautiful thing, right? And so there, there's an appropriate ambition to see people saved and to see the church growing in size because means more people are coming under the, 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 the preaching of the word and growing in maturity. And yet sometimes it can become kind of devoid of all the, the biblical substance. It's just about kind of getting more numbers on the roll. So, yeah, those are some of the ways I thought of that it can, what it can look like to expect a pastor to be a business executive. Another thing he wrote there is hirelings, or I'll go and group this in with the next one under that, um, given to the church as though it were their chosen vacation, vocation, vocation for material gain or earthly comfort, so treating it as though it's just a vocation. An elder of this sort is quick to get out at the first sight of danger, right? You think of the, just the metaphor there of a shepherd, and a shepherd's there to protect the sheep, in part to protect the sheep from wolves. And yet, there's a little danger in standing in between the flock and a wolf. And so, uh, the hireling, who really has no, no interest in the sheep, they're just interested in getting their daily pay. Well, that daily pay is probably not worth it on the day the wolf shows up, right? So better is to get out of there and forfeit the pay than to stick around, and that's what a hireling does. When there's a site of danger, he, he's out of there. Um, it might also look like, uh, you know, he's just here to show up and give the church what they want. And so it's leadership by, by not rocking the boat, right? Just, just avoid conflict at all costs. There's no real clarity about what Scripture says. The church should be or where people ought to be in their spiritual life and a willingness to, to lead them there. And that will result in, like, never confronting people. There's a need when you see people going astray. A true shepherd says, I got to appeal to you. And sometimes those sheep might bite, right? But the true shepherd doesn't back away from that. He still says, I, I, I only have the authority of the scriptures, but I'm going to come to you and appeal to you from the scriptures that what you're doing isn't appropriate and that you need to turn away from that. So that would be kind of the reverse of a hireling or someone who's simply doing it for the sake of pay. Jumping down to that next list, a true shepherd is not... He says, an untested novice, and he goes on in that paragraph to fill out a number of things. Really, we could have a whole separate sublist in that paragraph. When it comes to a novice, that seems to allude to the word that's often used in many of our translations in 1 Timothy 3.6, right? That um, a pastor, an elder, an overseer is not to be a novice. And in that context, that simply means a new convert. Exactly how we define that. Um, you know, it, Scripture doesn't make that really clear for us. Quite frankly, I think that's probably because, depending on different contexts, in a brand new 
church context, someone who's been a believer for three years is not a new convert. In a church that's been around for 75 years, someone who's been a believer for only three years is probably still considered a bit of a new convert and isn't going to be made an elder in that church. So um, it is somewhat general, but it means he's not recently converted. They also mentioned there that he's not an untested novice. So what does the testing of an elder look like? Someone who would become an elder. What would that look like? I mean, did you, did you even think about just the responsibility of, you know, uh, as this church brings before you men who ought to be elders, what does it look like for those men to have been tested? Go ahead, David. Good, yep. Yeah. I like that because my thoughts initially went to testing in the realm of shepherding. But you're even thinking like just testing in the realm of being a faithful believer, which is critical. Like that's, that's foundational. So yeah, and I think he even comes back to that somewhat here. He's a man who has shown just faithfulness in those ways. As the Lord's brought trials into his life, he's responded with maturity. And remember, maturity doesn't mean perfection. Maturity doesn't mean that a man never makes any mistakes, but it means he's, he's able to own those and acknowledge those and repent of those. Um, But also it means that his life isn't just a a perpetual rotation of falling flat on his face and confessing it and saying he's going to repent and then falling flat on his face again. But there being some measure of progress in seeing that he's he's sort of out in front. He's he's showing that he's, not that he's perfect, but that he's able to demonstrate repentance. It's not just simply always a wish, I'll I'll aim to repent next time, but no, it's actually progress. And it looks different for him when he repents than for many members in the church. Yeah. Correct. Yep. Yep. Totally. Totally. Yeah. So, yeah, when it comes now to the testing in terms of like spiritual shepherding, shepherding abilities, yeah, the pastoral epistles are very clear that. Um, the primary domain that kind of operates on the assumption that every man before he becomes an elder is going to have, have a home, he's going to be married and have children, and um, that's his first realm of shepherding. And so it would be silly for a man to have been neglectful in that domain and still to think that he ought to be appointed to shepherding at an even broader level. I don't even want to say a higher level because, I mean, th- there's a huge responsibility. Part of that maturity is just owning whatever level of responsibility the Lord's given us, right? The mark of immaturity is to say, I'm aspiring for that level of responsibility, that kind of work, and so I'm going to kind of shun the, what responsibility is given to me today. But as, as Jesus says, you know, the one who's responsible with little, faithful with little, he'll be faithful with much. And so that man takes seriously his responsibility in his home. That's not simply a small matter. Even if he's already aspiring to eldership, uh, he doesn't look at that as a small matter or simply a stepping stone to get there. It's, it's an area that he owns and puts a lot of work and thought into. Do you have a thought, Doug? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, 
the scriptures, I think, are somewhat ambiguous on that. They, they simply lay out sort of this, you know, that he needs to be faithful in his home. Well, does that mean that he must have a household? In other words, he must be married, must have children. Or is that operating on the assumption that most men will, and assuming he does, then he needs to make sure he's faithful in that domain, such that if he wasn't married, or was married, didn't have children, that it would still be possible to look at the domains he does have responsibility for. How's he doing there, right? Um, So I'm, without the text saying more, I'm more inclined to say that it seems to be more of an assumption there that will often be true. And that's still true in our own time, right? Um, And so where that's that's present, he has that domain, then he's got to show himself responsible. If he doesn't have that domain, I don't know the scriptures say that he's excluded from becoming an elder but that you, there's still the principle of in those domains he has responsibility and needs to be faithful, so we should apply that in a different way. Some of the things you might consider are just the one writing these instructions would be Paul, right? And we don't know whether Paul was at a previous time or not married. Um, and to be fair, Paul wasn't calling himself an elder or an overseer, right? Um, but he was still an apostle, and um, yeah, I don't, don't, don't see anything in the text that would suggest that for him being married is essential, now, granted, people often appeal to, like, the practical aspects of that. Well, if he's going to be a shepherd, he'll need to be involved in marriage counseling. Um, so those are, those are realities to be considered, but I don't think those are exclusive at all. In fact, in some ways, I think that some of that concern probably comes back to our own tendency to want to give advice based more on our own experience than upon, like, carefully taking people back to texts of Scripture and helping them to put that into practice in their own life. And so, granted... To be very clear, there's a huge benefit in having someone who not only knows the biblical principles and the texts they come from and can explain those and can, in theory, help someone apply them, but who's had 40 years of marriage behind them of putting those into practice, right? There's an advantage there. Um, I just don't know if I would go so far as to say that that's essential. Yeah. So, Good. Mark, Clay, do you guys have any follows up, follow-up on that? Ed, did you something? Go ahead. Totally, totally. Totally, yeah. In fact, he almost, I mean, he does say, I think it's a bit of hyperbole, but he basically makes a complete dichotomy. Either you remain unmarried and serve the Lord, or you get married and you serve your spouse instead of serving the Lord. That's, it's a bit of a, a, a hyperbolic dichotomy, but that's essentially what he says, yeah. So your point is just with such a strong emphasis from Paul on new covenant believers considering singleness as almost a primary option. Like, consider that first, and then if that doesn't work out for you, then go on and get married. Then it's hard in that context to consider that those leaders of the congregation would have to be married. Is that fair? Yeah. So it seems as though Paul's saying that new covenant believers should first consider staying single. And then if that isn't a good option for them, then go ahead and get married. Yep. Totally. Totally. Yep. Yep. Good. Yeah, I completely agree.
Yep. Totally. Totally. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yep. There's a difficult balance, though. Like Clay brought out some of those dynamics. I think as Americans, it seems like we tend to often accent the side of a husband and father has responsibility to protect his family. But sometimes we do it almost to the extent that, therefore, a husband and father, because he's needed by his family, he's exempt from the call to take up his cross and follow Christ. Or, if taking up his cross ever implied that his children and his wife would also have to take up their cross, you know, kind of by implication since they're following him, then, then uh, he shouldn't do that either. And just, the scriptures don't say that. Like, becoming, being a believer, even though you're a husband and father, necessarily involves peril for wife and kids. And that's just something the scriptures don't take away. Um, so, on the one hand, like, there's not simply that seeking to kind of avoid that, and yet on the other hand, if like you already know, hey, I, I'm eager to go into this, this area where I know there's a need for churches, and yet I know that it's, it's a very hostile region, like it would be wise, I think, for that man to say, I'm going to forego bringing a wife and kids into that type of a context um, for their own safety and then also just for the, the ability to function more in a more streamlined way. But yeah, it's a critical piece too. I mean, Often where there's a need for churches to be planted, where, you know, what's often called, sometimes these labels are the way we define who are unreached peoples, who, who aren't, can often be a bit murky sometimes, but where there are legitimately places where there are not many healthy churches, are not many believers carrying on the work, and there's a need for people from outside to come in and kind of set up there and start sharing the gospel, start planting a church, there's often a reason why there aren't many believers there. Because there's a great hostility, and those who have come before have been killed. And that doesn't give us the, the option of just simply saying, okay, we're going to give up then until things cool off a bit then, right? I mean, the, it seems as though there's a need for just continued pushing into those domains. Um, and there's not a certain point at which you say, okay, Christ's concern to save those whom he's chosen from every tribe um, is probably kind of, he's given up on this tribe because they keep killing every believer who would come there. No, it continues on. You know, at some point, I think, getting a bit of a hobby horse here, but when it comes to certain areas that don't have any believers, we have to ask the question, you know, how many coffins of young men have to come back before we eventually say, Christ, what you've called us to is too much. Like, that people group isn't worth it. I know you saved people there. You chose people from that people group to be saved, but we will not risk any of our young men to go there and bring the gospel to them. Like, I just don't see where... We ever reach this threshold, and it's enough now. Let's just kind of give up on that. But I think we, we do often practically reach that threshold pretty soon. Ah, that seems a bit dangerous, so let's... That, that's still important, but we just won't focus on that, you know? And so I think Clay's point is essential. That's, 
that'd be wise in those contexts. Go ahead, Mark. Sure. Sure, yep. That's good. Yeah. Honey, why, why do you want to marry me? Oh, because it will look good on my resume. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that, Mark. If anyone was doubting your advice and they need to know what kind of wife to find to look good on their resume, yeah. Good. Okay, so continuing on with an untested novice. That was a good discussion, though. Good, good, uh, good question that Doug raised and some good input. Um, yeah, he then goes on and says, no grasp of biblical theology with no skill in handling the word of God. So obviously a man must be able to handle the scriptures skillfully. That's something that's specifically drawn out. Must be a proved workman. Now that doesn't mean that a pastor must have formal training. When you think about our own elders here, if I remember their, what they have in their past correctly, I think only two out of the five of them have any kind of formal theological degree. Um, so even in a church like ours where we I think it's pretty evident we hold up the need for men to be able to handle the scriptures well, that doesn't simply mean a piece of paper. There are plenty of men who have some kind of formal theological training that would not be made elders here. Um, and there are men who have none of that but they're able to handle the scriptures faithfully. Formal theological training can be a means to that, a way to get that training, but it's not essential. For those of you who have been in, uh, under any of Pastor uh, Rich's teaching, um, but particularly been in his recent uh, equipping class, you know that that man is able to faithfully handle the scriptures and apply them well, and yet he doesn't have any of that formal theological training goes on and says, without proven maturity in godly living. So it's not simply that everyone in the community knows him as a good guy. Though that kind of reputation in the community is important, according to the pastoral epistles, for a man who would be an elder. But that he traces issues back to the heart level. He identifies the lie he is believing and the truths he ought to be believing instead of those lies. And he begins walking in repentance by saying that truth that I'm struggling to believe, I'm going to lay hold of that by faith. I'm going to believe that's true rather than the lie that leads me to my sin. And he has done that habitually over and over and over again in his own life. That's what it means by a a proven maturity in godly living. Then he helps others to do the same. That's what someone who has a proven maturity in godly living does. He just turns that outward and helps others do that very same thing. He's wise and helpful in doing so. 
And then just continuing with this idea of without proven maturity and godly living um, and helping others to do the same. The man who is ready to be considered for eldership is consistently doing battle with sin in his own heart. He has a proven track record of doing so, and that's evidenced by progress in his own life. His wife and his children, if he has them, testify to his faithfulness, to his skill, to his gentleness in helping them trace their sin to its root in their heart. All those same things, identifying wrong thinking, replacing it with right thinking, um, putting off ways that flow out of that wrong thinking, and putting on ways that are consistent with right biblical thinking. He's helping others in the church to do likewise, not necessarily a part of some rigid program. You know, well, I've never been asked to be a part of some discipleship program, so how could I have done that? No, it's just simply, it flows out of everyday life. After the service, you talk to someone, and they begin sharing about what's going on in their life. And it's not always a matter of confrontation. Sometimes it's just a matter of encouragement. But the point is, you're hearing what's coming. You're able to evaluate that. Think about that through a biblical grid. And say, okay, this person needs encouragement, so I'm going to encourage them here. This person should be reminded of this truth, so I'm going to remind them of this truth here. And that's what that person does, kind of just as, a, as their MO. Not because they're simply seeking to position themselves for some kind of position in the church, but because they love people, and they want to see Christ's church strengthened, and they understand that soul care, just helping others, encouraging them, strengthening them, it's just a part of what it means to be a believer. But... The elder must be proven in that. I'm going to skip down to the last one on that list. He isn't content to give the flock a light meal when he preaches. Not since he's not neglectful of the health of the flock, but provides the best nourishment and protection. But he works hard to prepare and give them meat when he feeds them. Um... It's easy to keep people happy and keep the paycheck coming by feeding, by feeding people um, dessert for every meal, right? But people often struggle to eat their veggies. And a faithful pastor will mix in veggies. He'll include the veggies in there, right? Um, I don't know how to make sure that maps well and clearly to, uh, to reality. The point is just that sometimes the Christian life requires hard thinking and hard... Considering, considering different aspects and putting time into that. And a, a faithful pastor encourages men to do that, not simply giving them kind of a little encouragement that will keep them happy and, and thankful and giving their tithe. Um, yeah, that doesn't mean that a faithful pastor doesn't encourage people or, or doesn't uh, focus on those types of hope-giving truths, but um, he, he's aimed at what they need, right? The parent encourages their children to eat the vegetables as a part of other things because they know that's what they need to grow strong and healthy. And that's what drives the faithful shepherd as well. Real quickly, just kind of a little parenthesis. This, this study introduced kind of three different titles, right? So the, shep- the shepherd, the pastor, or sorry, the shepherd, the elder, and the overseer. Do you guys see that? And so far, the whole study has been talking about it as though these are interchangeable terms. It doesn't really gave us three categories, but they never even explain, well, which one are we talking about here? And really, we could even throw another term in there, um, that of pastor, right? He doesn't mention pastor there, which is a term we often use for this role. He mentions shepherd, elder, and overseer. Well, many of you are aware that pastor is simply another word for shepherd. So those are synonymous. 
Um, anytime you see in your New Testament the word pastor, it could as easily have been translated as shepherd. Um, but how do those areas, a shepherd, an elder, and an overseer relate to one another? What's the difference between them? How are they similar? Go with me. Grab your Bible and go with me to Acts chapter 20. Mark Shandorf's noting that the, the bishops, they wear a different kind of hat. They're distinguished by their hat, right? <laughs> uh, I did. With you being next to Mark, though, my, my eyes are already trained to be careful about what's coming from that corner. Mm-hmm. All right, so Acts chapter 20. Paul stops at a town somewhat nearby to Ephesus, and he wants to talk with the elders of the church in Ephesus to kind of give them some encouragement. And it's this chapter here is really a very sober passage because Paul seems to be very aware that he doesn't have any more time, much more time on earth. He doesn't, he's probably never going to see these men again. And yet this is a church he spent years with and is eager to kind of give just a parting encouragement to them. And so he calls the elders to travel from Ephesus to the port city where he is so he can meet with them. And so first note, um, just note these terms, right? So verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church, right? So notice that. First, it says he's calling to them himself the elders, then jump down into the middle of this speech to verse 28. So he's in the midst of exhorting these elders whom he's called to himself. And he says, verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among whom which among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. At least that's how the NASB translates it. That's the word that's usually translated overseer or bishop in like the King James. So it's these elders, the Holy Spirit has called them to be bishops or overseers. So it seems as though they're interchangeable terms. Then he continues on and says, for what purpose? To shepherd the church of God. See how all those terms are coming together there? The elders are the ones who are appointed to oversee and to shepherd. Um, Turn with me also to Titus chapter 1. You'll see in Titus chapter 1 that it begins in verse 5 by saying, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And then he goes on and begins giving the qualifications. Verse 6, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Verse 7, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. He's not moving on to a different category because he introduces with that for. He's going on and explaining that. So we can see that, For Paul, elder and overseer are interchangeable terms, and then what that elder slash overseer does is he shepherds. Um, Even another passage we can see that in is 1 Peter 5. This will be the last one I take you to. But 1 Peter 5, Peter writes, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder, um, verse 2, to shepherd the flock of God among you. So the elders are to be shepherding, and then he continues verse 2, exercising oversight. That word for an overseer, the very same word there. 
So we can see these terms all come together. It seems that an elder is kind of primarily the, the, the name for the office. That position would be that of an elder. And then on the other end of the spectrum, a shepherd is kind of the functional designation. That's what he describes what he does. And an overseer somewhere in between. It's sometimes used as a designation for the office, but it also seems to have a strong emphasis on what he does as well, that is, give oversight. And an elder simply seems to refer to him being a community leader, often implying maturity, dignity, wisdom. Um, community leaders, how it's often used generally, whether in Israel or in, in the Greco-Roman world, uh, for that type, an elder, um, but then obviously within the church. He's not just a community leader, he's a church leader, um, but often implying maturity, dignity, wisdom. As I mentioned, an overseer identifies the men in the office as responsible for the overall care of the flock. Um, and then shepherd pastor identifies what they do, you know, leading, feeding, protecting. So each of these terms seem to refer to the same same office. Just trying to bring some clarity there as you think through what do the scriptures teach about what a pastor should be or an elder should be or an overseer should be. I think all those passages can be brought together because they refer to the same office. Let's see what time it is. We've talked through what an elder should not be and alluded a bit to what he should be. I think we'll stop there for the sake of time before we jump into that. But yeah, so we'll pick up there. Pastor Fair will pick up there, beginning to jump into what it means for a, an elder to be a shepherd, what that looks like to shepherd the flock. Any, any final thoughts or questions? Yeah, yeah. I think at the very least you can say that the oversight role seems to have less to do with caring for individuals as much as the whole in shepherding seems to require a little more individual focus. Although shepherding is done when there's the whole church gathers and someone preaches, right? So that can still happen at the corporate level, but often it also needs to happen in terms of being among the flock and talking to them individually, those types of things. Yeah, thanks for that. Go ahead, Yeah, I would say they're all the same. The same people are the elders. The elder is the most common term given to to like identify them, that office. But then they have responsibilities to oversee and to shepherd. And so there's not separate, a separate distinction there in terms of some are overseeing elders, some are shepherding elders. They would all be the same. In fact, teaching would be the same as well. Some denominations even create a distinction there. There are teaching elders and ruling elders. I shall see that in the New Testament. Yep. All right. Close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you that you are building your church. 
and that you have given us instructions for what your church ought to be. And I thank you for these men who, who come out um, every Tuesday morning and uh, we gather together to briefly read your word and then to dig into the study of your word, uh, thinking about a variety of areas. And I pray, Lord, that they would be growing and just their equipping and their understanding of your word, their ability to be leaders, at the very least in their homes and, and informally, having influence among those around them in the church and um, at work in the neighborhood. Um, and I pray that they would continue to grow in maturity Um, Help us to think clearly about these matters. And Lord, we want to thank you for the elders you've given us um, here at this church, for their faithfulness. Uh, We pray for them, that you would keep them, continue growing them, um, and and continue just blessing their labors with fruitfulness in this context. May we uh, esteem them as we ought, um, and may they, they count it a privilege to shepherd us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.